Well, good morning, Chillicothe Bible Church, once again. Today, we are in an exciting passage. And when you read it, you're going to go, you need to readjust your definition of exciting. But I want to assure you, this is an exciting passage. Uh, it has lots of names, uh, lots of numbers, uh, lots of indications of so-and-so were the sons of uh, lots of uh, information about offerings and so forth. And so it reads a lot like what a lot of people refer to as one of those dreaded genealogy passages, right? Um, and, and here's the thing about those genealogies. Uh, you know, if, if I were to tell you, you know, hey, we're going to read through my genealogy, you would find that very boring. But if I said we're going to read through yours, you'd find it really exciting because you would want to know who's back in my ancestry. Who are these people and what, what did they do and what were they like and, and that kind of thing, right? Um, well, this is a passage that includes information about a previous generation. And, uh, and if you understand why it is there, why this text appears where it does in the book of Nehemiah, I think it'll also be exciting to you because it, you'll find that it speaks directly to the same kind of situation in which we find ourselves as a church today. So without any further delay, I want to have us all stand and follow along as I read Nehemiah chapter 7. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge of Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Point guards are among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Misperath, Bigvi, Nehem, Baana. The number of the people of Israel, the sons of Perosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephtiah, 372. The sons of Eros, 652. The sons of Pehath, Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Binwi, 648. The sons of Bebai, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Adonikam, 667, the sons of Bigvi, 2067, the sons of Aden, 655, uh, the sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Hashum, 328, the sons of Bezai, 324, the sons of Harif, 
112, the sons of Gibeah, 95. The men in Bethlehem and Natophah, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men of Beth, Beth Azamavith, 42. The men of Kiriath Jerim, Chephirah, and Beroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The men of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721. The sons of Saniah, 3,930. The priests, the sons of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Kadmiel, of the sons of Hodavah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atir, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, 138. The temple servants, the sons of Zihad, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Taboah, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Paddan, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Riah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasia, the sons of Basai, the sons of Munim, the sons of Nefushabim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Baslet, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkas, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Timon, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of, Ho of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Parida, the sons of Jalah, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokereth, Hazabiam, the sons of Ammon, all the temple servants and sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Tel Milah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, uh, Adon, and Emmer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descendants, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded when the priesthood is unclean. The governor told them they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arrive. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand derricks of gold, fifty basins, thirty priest garments, and five hundred minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work twenty thousand derricks of gold and two thousand two hundred 
miners of silver and what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 miners of silver, and 67 priest garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all of Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Amen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, um, we, as we come to your word this morning, we aren't even sure, some of us, why this text is in the Bible. And what we are supposed to learn from it. But Father, I pray that you would open our, our ears, our minds, and our hearts to receive your word. And receive from it that which you would have us to learn and to grow. And Father, we pray that, um, that we would see this text with the eyes that you, that you give by your Holy Spirit. That we might apply it and obey it and walk in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, if you look at the opening verses of this text, uh, verse 1 to 5, uh, what you'll see there is the, the description of the, the state of Jerusalem. Uh, if, you, if you hear the story of Nehemiah taught to you in Sunday school, if you ever had that happen as a kid, usually the story stops before you get to chapter 7, just like when... Uh, when we tell the story of Jonah, we usually stop around chapter 3. That Jonah was spit out by the, flip, by the fish on the dry land, and then God came to him a second time, and he went off and he shared the gospel with those people, and they all, as one city, came to repent. And it's a wonderful little story. Right? It leaves out chapter 4. Uh, well, in Nehemiah, we usually, we usually skip everything after the wall is rebuilt. And we tell the story in Sunday school, but there is more to the story. Uh, you know, you may have imagined, uh, if you're unfamiliar with Nehemiah, that the rebuilding of the wall was the capstone of God's restoration ex efforts for his exiled people. And this is like, hey, we did it. This is the pinnacle. But it's really, uh, that's not really an accurate picture. Things are progressing well, but they are a long way from being fully restored in the way that God wants them to be. So imagine if you lost your house in a fire and everything just burned down to the ground except for the foundation. Maybe you've got a few sticks and wires still standing, but everything is just burned to a crisp and you're having to start completely over. And after a big effort, you've got, you've got a lot of debris cleared. You've got walls up. Your subfloor is down. You've got your walls up. You've got a, uh, trusses set. You've got a roof on. You've got shingles. You've got windows and doors. Hallelujah. You've made huge progress, right? You are, at this point, weather tight. You can, you can sleep in there and not get wet when it rains. That's a good thing, right? That's big progress. But you still need siding. And you're still going to need insulation. And you're still going to need wiring. And plumbing. And flooring. And cabinets. And drywall. And paint. And then, after you get all of that, then you actually have to move your stuff in, right? And actually have it suitable 
for human habitation. And, and this is kind of where the people of Israel are at right now. The wall is rebuilt, but there's still a long way to go yet on the rebuilding effort that they're in. And on top of that, the wall, such as it is, does not look as impressive as it might. All of their enemies on seeing it finished are, say, are, are, are mocking them over what it looks like because it's a fairly ramshackle affair. Uh, there, there are def it's to full height, and there are definitely walls there. But it doesn't look as impressive as what it replaced. In fact, archaeologists confirm that when they find remnants of Nehemiah's wall, that it was not the same quality as the wall which preceded it or the wall which followed it. And that's not surprising. After all, it was built by non-professionals. And they were not trying to take their time. They were trying to get it done. And on top of that, um, very few of the houses have been fully rebuilt. The list of people that Nehemiah can really trust to lead things in, uh, in, in the city of Jerusalem is not long. And so he picks his own brother and the guy who is in charge of the, the military uh, presence that's there in Jerusalem, the governor of the castle, we're told, uh, the place where Nehemiah himself lived, and his own brother. You guys need to be in charge of some things. And he says he picked them out because they feared God more than most people. Right? On a, in other words, on a comparative basis, these guys are godly. <laughs> right? Hardly a ringing endorsement. Uh, there are very few houses rebuilt. The list of people, if you go through chapter 3, and, and if you remember that, uh, as you go through chapter 3, it seems like a long list of names. But in reality, it's not. You know how many names there are? There are about 48 different names that show up in, uh, in, the, in Nehemiah chapter 3 as people involved in the rebuilding effort, people who are specifically named. There are some additional categories of people. So there are priests, temple servants, daughters, brothers, Tekoites, men of Jericho, categories of people, but there probably weren't more than a few hundred, maybe a thousand people who were involved in total in the rebuilding of the wall. And though it seems like a, a list, it isn't really all that long. When you're talking about a project as massive as this is, rebuilding a city that is designed with the walls around it are designed for, to hold hundreds of thousands of people. And this is dozens of people who are involved in rebuilding. Uh, it may have felt a bit like a marble in a shoebox. You know, just, just a few, just a relative handful of people rattling around in a city the temple is visible, but the temple, remember, is not as grand and glorious as the one that Solomon built. It's visible from everywhere in the city, but everything has kind of a humble feel to it. 
this is a place that is big enough. If you can imagine this, you know, I'm an Indiana boy, so this is my point of reference, okay? When I grew up, one of the events that my parents went to every year was the Indianapolis 500. I've actually been to the 500, seen the race. It's phenomenal. Uh, in fact, you know, we still have live debates over when the be who the best drivers were and when the best years to watch the race were, right? Uh, but I got to see it and see those guys go around that oval at 235 miles an hour, and it is phenomenal. I wanted to be one of those guys at a certain point in my life. Still like to drive a car 235 miles an hour someday. Uh, maybe I'll get to do that in eternity. Um, but <laughs> in any case, uh, and then some, and maybe in eternity, you'll be like, "Why would you have to go that slow?" Um, but <laughs> but in any case, um, you know, this is my kind of my frame of reference. Okay, it's a two and a half mile oval, and the Indianapolis 500 race used to. Uh, be the largest single single day sporting event in the world, and, and, and inside that facility, there would be over a million people in there. The wall around the city of Jerusalem that Nehemiah built may have been about that size, about two and a half miles in circumference. And if you've not been to the 500 or know anything about auto racing, you know that when people that for an event like this. It's an, it's an event that has stuff going on about a month prior with qualification and carburation day and all of the parades and there's a, a race and you run around the track. Uh, and I've done that a couple times. Uh, there's all kinds of just fun stuff going on and there are people camping out and campers and tents and all kinds of stuff. And you can hold hundreds of thousands of people in this area. But in Jerusalem, in the days of Nehemiah, there's maybe a few hundred people living inside of a ramshackle wall with a ramshackle temple that they go to worship at. And it's humble beginnings. They're in a place of humble new beginnings. They're hopeful for more, but practically speaking, they're only able to do just a little bit. So Nehemiah, what he does is he makes a shrewd move. He, he starts to appoint leaders over the city, decides himself because he knows he's going to be leaving at some point. Uh, and he also decides that he's going to limit the hours that people can go in and out of the city to essentially just the middle of the day. Normally you would open the gates of the city at sunrise and you would close them at sunset, but Nehemiah decides that what he's going to do instead is not open the gates until the sun is hot, until the sun is high in the sky. And he posts guards throughout the city everywhere. Why does he do that? Well, one of the ways that you stimulate demand for something is by limiting artificially the supply. And so if you wanted to... Uh, come into the city of Jerusalem and trade and conduct business, well, that's fine, but you can't come in until noon. And then we're going to shut the gates of the city, meaning you can't go out after you've been here just a couple of hours. Well, what's that going to do? Well, that's going to encourage some of these tradesmen and merchants to just go ahead and move in. Because then I can have access to the people here at any time of day. 
and I can continue my business. Trying to motivate people to move in. And the other thing is, this is a two-pronged deal. He's, he radically increases the number of guards. Why do you, would you do that? Well, because one of the things that people must have in order to move into a place is security. If they do not feel safe, if they have choices, they will not move there. Amen? The only reason people would live in an area that they feel unsafe is that they have no other options. But people who feel safe will move into a place. And so he makes the presence of security uh, abundantly obvious to everybody. Every place you go, there's a guard. This is a secure, safe city. Now this this was brought home. This principle of you know needing security was brought home for me when I uh, when I moved to Dallas. Moved to Dallas um, 24 years ago uh, to go to to go to Dallas Seminary. And when we when we got to Dallas, the seminary when it was built in the 20s uh, was built in a very posh section of town. But by the year 1997, the neighborhood had changed significantly. I'll just say it that way. And um, across the street, there was a by-the-hour hotel. And, uh, you know, there were um, homeless people sleeping under people's cars. You had to check and tell people if you live there, hey, I need to move my car. Can you, can you get out from underneath there? And all of the student housing was kind of a roach motel kind of a scenario where you had to have the bug man come in every month and spray, keep the roaches from crawling on you at night. And so anyway, uh, it has changed significantly for the better since, I'm happy to report. But back in those days, it was pretty grungy. And when we, uh, when we came down there to check things out, you know, I had heard all these things about the glories of Dallas Seminary and Chuck Swindoll was the president there. And, you know, we came down and we took a look at what was going on. And Karen looked at me and she, in her gentle way and she said, sweetheart, I don't know where we're living, but it isn't here. <laughs> okay. And, and we just continued driving. We didn't know where we were going, but we continued driving until we found a place that looked safe. You know, some place that didn't have gates and bars uh, around the apartment complexes, you know, because that was that was the other re really reassuring thing. We went to this neighborhood where a lot of the seminary students live and all of the apartment complexes had big steel bar gates with electronic locks and entry and so forth in front of that. And we met with this leasing agent and, and she was a kind of a fancy lady with a Mercedes and so forth and uh, very, you know, dressed to the nines and so forth. And so we thought, well, this might be okay. And then um, she was showing us, oh, you know, all of our units here have a burglar alarm that calls the police and everyone has a unique code to get in the gate and so forth. And we're like, so all this security, is that really needed? And she's like, oh, honey, where are you from? And we're like, well, we're from Indiana. She goes, well, you're in Dallas now. <laughs> and we were like, yeah, nope, not living here either, right? And we just, um, 
we finally found a, a wonderful, safe place to live in an apartment, right? Because if you don't feel safe, you're not living there. And so Nehemiah does the same thing. He creates safety and security so that people can move back in. But um, I think the reason I think the reason that God includes these verses about the humble state of Jerusalem is so that uh, is so that God's people, when they read them, will have encouragement as they move forward. Because men and women, I believe this, that like the ancient people of Nehemiah's day, uh, we're in a rebuilding phase. Amen. Some of y'all who are Bears fans, you know, you rejoice when you when they hired Andy Dalton because you know we're going to have a glorious year, right? Not really. You, you, you thought, no, nope, we're having a rebuilding year, right? We're going to lose a bunch of football this year. We've got Andy Dalton quarterbacking. Um, so, um, but we as a church are likewise in a rebuilding phase. Like the ancient people of God, we're in the process of rebuilding. We have a good base to build on. We have dozens of people here who are committed to the work of ahead of us. Like them, we have reestablished worship together for the most part because that is a priority. That is something that we must do is we must worship together. And more and more of our family as a church is rejoining us every week as more and more of us get vaccinated. But let me warn you right here at the outset that as excited as I am about this year, that our rebuilding may not look like much to start with. It may not be accompanied by great fanfare. We are excited to get children's ministry going again. On May the 2nd, we will, as God provides, have the nursery and children's church and Sunday school operating. We hope to have our first potluck in coordination with our annual meeting on May the 30th. I'm looking forward to that. As we start to reestablish fellowship. Over the summer, we'll have some more fellowship gatherings and opportunities. I hope we get to go fishing and, and maybe we'll go canoeing down the Fox River again as we did last summer. Hope to be able to do some of that. I, as God continues to raise up leaders, we'll have Awana and small groups and mops. Uh, going on this fall as God provides and raises up leaders and volunteers for those ministries. And the pieces are all getting set for something I'm really excited about, which is uh, the new ministry that Wendy Murdian and some of the other women are going to lead uh, for sexual abuse recovery that I think is going to touch a lot of women in our community. I'm going to continue to encourage our men to grow into disciples who make disciples. But even as all these things happen, they won't all happen in a way that is necessarily visible. It is necessarily accompanied by a lot of fanfare. And what it will involve is a lot of small efforts over a long period of time by a large number of people. But I believe that God is calling us to move with him from these humble beginnings into new beginnings, just as he was doing with them. Amen?
that God is calling us to move from humble beginnings to new beginnings and to rebuild in a way that brings Him honor. Now, there is more in this passage. In fact, there are about 68 more verses in this text. And I know that you're all dying for me to go through every one of them one at a time. Not really. Uh, we're not going to do that, okay? But I want to do what I want to do though is draw your attention to uh, some of the things that we need to see in these remaining verses in this chapter, and uh, help us to see what we need to see out of them. First of all, I want you to notice the variety of people that make up this list. It includes at the beginning of it leaders and noblemen. It includes figures like Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the 24th grandson, if you will, 24 generations removed from David. And he is the first governor of the exiles. It includes uh, a lot of other noblemen and leaders. Uh, it includes uh, ordinary people, too, who settled in each of about 20 different towns that are listed they all went back to their ancestral homelands. There are priests that led the nation in worship and making sacrifices. There are Levites who assisted the priests with the sacrifices and the daily service and the teaching of the law. There are singers and gatekeepers. And so in other words, both worship leaders, worship team members, and security personnel. Right? Uh, there are uh, servants, people who whose task is not specified, but whose job was to serve in various capacities. There are even people whose ancestry was questionable. Do you see that? Now, we don't know necessarily if these people are supposed to be part of us or not, but we're, they're included in the group who came back. Uh, notice also how many people there are. Just over 42,000 Jewish people came back to Judah. Now, maybe that sounds like a lot to you. By historical standards, it's not a lot. The, the, after King Solomon was king, his kingdom was divided uh, into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was carried off into exile by, in 722 by the Assyrians. And that whole nation vanished into exile. And that was hundreds of thousands of people who were taken captive into exile. Maybe millions. We don't really know how many of them there were. But they, they went into exile. Very few of them ever came back. When Judah was exiled, it, was, it happened progressively in stages. There were at least three different exiles that took place before the final one in, in 586 B.C. And at the last one, there were about 40,000 people who were taken off, deported to Babylon. That was the remnants of the people who were just in Jerusalem. But historians estimate that as many as 120,000 people were exiled from Judah off to Babylon. So out of the people who came back, it was just a fraction. 
of those who had left. A tiny fraction, a remnant, a scrap of all of the hundreds of thousands, possibly millions who were who went off into exile, only a few came back. But those who came back did so with great faith and did so with great generosity. This group of just over 40,000 people uh, gave out of their resources an amount of money that would equate today to over $20 million. And especially when you consider that that currency was, was rare and valuable in those days in a way that, you know, a dollar bill is not the same as a gold coin uh, in terms of its availability. But these people gave gold and silver equivalent to over $20 million. Now, there's one other thing you may not have noticed unless you're a particularly astute Bible student. And that is, is that you have seen, if you've read your Bible, this listing of these people one other place. And it's from the book of Ezra. It's, in fact, Ezra chapter 2 and this section of Nehemiah are almost completely identical in their content. Uh, now, Something else you may not understand is that this list is not a list of Nehemiah's contemporaries. This is a list of people from 80 years in the past. Nehemiah is doing his ministry in around 445 B.C. This is a list of people who came back in 538. 80 years in the past. So in other words, this is people who, to put it in our terms, that would be 1941. Now some of you were around in 1941. But as I look around the room, it would not be a long list of you who are still around in 1941. And if you are here today and you're around in 1941, likelihood is you were a very young person then. Right? Uh, 1941 puts you about, about eight years older than my dad if you were born that year, right? And 80 years in the past. And these people were adults when they came back. So there aren't probably many, maybe not any, of the original group in this list. So that raises a very obvious question. Why is this text here? What is the point that Nehemiah is making in including this list? These are all people who are, who are dead and buried for the most part. Why repeat all of that? Why go through all of that detail, all those numbers, all those names? Uh, and here's what I think. I think it's because Nehemiah is calling to mind the mighty and faithful heritage of the people of the past. He is, ta he is talking to the present generation about the faith of their forefathers, the founders of their new community. There were maybe only 
a few of them relative to the hundreds of thousands of, of members of Israel who went into exile, but those who returned were people of bold faith. Amen? After all, why didn't people come back from Babylon? It was because after 70 years in exile, they had made a new life there. And things were comfortable. And they were doing well. They were making good money. They were in good positions. Why would you leave all of that to go back and scratch out a living out of the ruins and the desert in Israel? Why would you do that? We would be moving from the center of world power back to the ruins that our ancestors left us. Why would we move back? But Nehemiah as he leads his contemporaries into this next phase, is calling on his contemporaries to have the same kind of bold faith as their ancestors who left Babylon moved back to achieve. He is saying, look, your ancestors from 80 years ago didn't leave their comfortable lives in Babylon so that their descendants could leave Jerusalem a deserted ghost town. That was not why they left. That was not why they came back. They left in faith, and they left believing in God's mission and in His calling to go back and rebuild. They left to go do these things because they believed that you, their descendants, would carry on what they had come back to do. They knew that they were investing in something that would outlive them and they are calling you to do it. Now, this list, in other words, is here in Nehemiah for the same reason that Hebrews 11 is in Hebrews. Y'all remember Hebrews 11? It's a great chapter. It's one everybody loves to read. It's, the, it's God's honor rule of faith. It's the hall of fame, if you will, of people of the Old Testament who through faith conquered kingdoms and shut the mouths of lions and went about in sheepskins and goatskins and lived in holes in the ground and called down fire from heaven and did all kinds of amazing things, right? Why is it in the book? It's in the book of Hebrews because God is calling those people who are reading Hebrews imitate the faith of their spiritual forefathers. Why is Nehemiah chapter 7 in the book of Nehemiah? Because Nehemiah uh, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is calling his people to imitate the faith of their spiritual forefathers in rebuilding. Why is it included in the book for us? Because God is calling us to do the same thing. To imitate the faith of our spiritual forefathers and continue God's mission. Just about 60 years ago, there were a bunch of people who got together and decided there needed to be a Bible preaching church in Chillicothe, Illinois, of all places. And they, they moved out here and they started one. And by God's grace, it has continued to do ministry down to this very day. Very few of our spiritual forefathers from that generation are still around. I think Dick and Nancy Lingenfelter are some of the very last ones of that founding generation. 
And here's the reality. Every generation, every generation has to pick up the torch that they are being passed from the previous one and carry forward God's mission. To imitate the faith their forefathers had and carry forward God's mission to make disciples of all nations beginning where they are and going out from there to all nations and all peoples of all kinds, of all races, of all languages throughout the entire world from that place. And that is our calling to carry on God's mission in our generation. Amen? And it isn't to grow weary with the idea that God would be calling you to serve and to step forward and to rebuild and to make a difference in the outcome going forward. And it won't look dramatic in a lot of cases. It'll look like a lot of work being done in an unseen way by a lot of people over a long period of time. But as it's done, we will carry forward God's mission and we will leave this church and its ministry safely in the hands of the next generation that follows behind us. Just like the previous generation passed it to us. Amen? I am excited about what's coming. I am excited for 2021. I can't wait to see what God does in us and through us in our community. We are going to have stuff happen. Some of which has never happened through this church. We're going to have some stuff that has happened before, but is going to happen in new ways and with new relationships and new connections and new people coming in. And we're going to get to see it. We're going to get to be used by God to bring it about. And as you, like these people, make a faithful investment of labor and time and resources and gifting, you will see rebuilding happen. Beginning phases of our rebuilding efforts are already laid. We've already got a bunch of stuff done. The hard work, though, has just begun. And so my challenge to you is to move forward with us in faith, carrying out the mission that our spiritual forefathers gave to us. To make disciples of all nations in all places until we die or Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. Amen? All right. Now let's pray. In fact, let's stand and then let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we are excited for what you're going to do in this place and with us, your people. We know, Father, that you can take people from humble beginnings to mighty new beginnings. And that you always choose to use people of every generation to accomplish your mission. Father, we pray that we would be such people. Who would, who would be willing and eager to be used of you in our generation to carry out your mission to the people of our generation. Father, uh, there has perhaps never been a generation of people that have arisen in America so desperately in need of the gospel as the one in which we are currently living. 
Father, we are not afraid of that. Because if the gospel can conquer the Roman Empire, then certainly the unbelieving wilds of America are no great problem for you. And Father, we believe in what you're calling us to do. We believe in the mightiness of your Holy Spirit to empower it. We believe in the power of the gospel to transform lives. And we believe that you will be faithful and show yourself faithful to us until we die or Jesus comes. And so, Father, we pray for your help by your Holy Spirit to be faithful and carry out your mission in our generation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.